nobody asked for this. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Nobody Asked For This, just another podcast about movies. I have decided to be William today. I'm still Stephen. Still we'll, here. We'll be other people <laughs> one of these days. Someday. <laughs> Someday. Someday. When the moon's all right. Uh, well, uh, so I kind of brought up the topic for today's because as you know, Stephen, I am a kaiju fan. I like my like my big, big scaly monsters. You do. You certainly do. I certainly do. I talk about them a lot, lose a lot of friendships over talking about them too much. Um, but uh, there is a lot of kaiju that kind of get forgotten in history um, or intentionally buried for political reasons. Uh, <laughs> so there's not there's, ga- not Gamera. No, not Gamera. Wait. Oh, OK. Gamera is my favorite unappreciated kaiju. I actually, maybe we'll do another podcast at least days about Gamera. I love well, he Gamera. Is, he is friend to all children. He is friend to all children, except for in the in the the first movie with Gamera, <laughs> he just kind of accidentally saved a child. But um, that's neither here nor there. Oh, I, I can remember that kid's name. What's that kid's name? Jeez, can't remember that kid's name. So the tip of my tongue, it just, they, they only say it a couple of times. I just can't remember that kid's name. Sorry. Small boy number one. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there is a specific big old forgotten kaiju that I would love to talk about today because his reasoning for being forgotten isn't just that he was boring or weird. It's completely political. Which is weird to say that a giant monster has political agendas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I am bringing up the big, the scaly, the horny on his head. That is mm. Polgasari. Mm. Sounds Italian. It mm. does, right? Well, last name ends in a vowel. So <laughs> how come I don't know? How come I've never heard of this? I don't know. Ah, uh, we get to Polgasari. It is good. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. <laughs> yeah, it comes up the, before the antipasta. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, but I mean, how come? Like the movie. Like I always thought it was a rumor. One of those crazy dictator stories you hear about, like, I'm going to prove this guy so crazy. Like, check this story out. He kidnapped movie filmmakers and forced them to make movies for him. Yes. And I, I have totally, little... blow, totally out of this world and completely incomprehensible, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like it does. It does sound like a fake story. So a little bit of backstory to it. So uh, before Kim Jong-il was in power, he was a huge movie buff. Like a ridiculously huge movie buff. Apparently, he is said to have a have had a collection of over fifteen thousand films, and was even mm. a fan of James Bond and Rambo. I believe that. Yeah, fifteen thousand number. That's probably propaganda. It might. It might be, or it might be one of those things that he just hoarded films from everywhere and just never watched them. Mm. Um, because even if, yeah, even if you do that by hours, that is that is fifteen thousand times one point five. That yeah, is. You gotta you gotta leave room for some killing. Yeah, there. yeah. As a crazy dictator. Exactly. Um, so uh, it is even rumored that he set up an underground film smuggling ring to get international film titles into the country since they didn't really allow many international titles at all. So <laughs> um, I think North... He's, he's the son of, and eventually the dictator. Yes. He could just do, he, could, he needed to smuggle movies into the country that he was a dictator of. Yes. Okay. <laughs> just, I'm sorry, I just, it didn't mean to stick on that point. No, no, it's no, it's 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 completely weird how this happened. That yeah, he he was instead of just saying, "Hey, Dad, can you change this rule?" 
they the Korean or North Korean country was so ridiculous about brainwashing and stifling the the media uh, for their people that the people in power set up black market supply chains for themselves. Ah. It's just, again, this all still mm-hmm. sounds fake. Like, this doesn't sound real at all. Yeah. I've always had a hard time believing North Korea is a real place, but the more I learn about it, it's uh, just really scary. Yeah, <laughs> it's South Korea's really ugly top hat. Uh, eventually, good old Kimmy J found himself at the head of the North Korean film industry. He became the bigwig overseeing all of it. Uh, however, he started to notice that North Korea's films were kind of not great. He felt actors weren't as talented, uh, filmmakers had little technical skill, and scripts were plain and boring. He, uh, he didn't really like what North Korea had going on uh, as far as films. So that's always a uh, that's always a weird thing to kind of say. It's like, hey, um, mm-hmm. you guys are great, but you're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, inferiority complex happens to the best of us. It does. It really does. Uh, And he wanted to use his films to educate international audiences about the super awesome policies of the DPRK. That is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is not democratic, nor is it really a people's republic. There's very few people left. Yeah. They keep killing. They keep killing them all. Yeah. Well, and it's not at all democratic. It's like, this guy's the dictator now. This guy's the dictator now. This guy's the yeah. dictator now. There's no democratic well, process. It's a family It's a family dynasty with, uh, it's like communism, but also Korean folk religion. And it, every communist country puts their national spin on it. And so with, uh, you know, in China, they merge it with Confucian thought. You know, everyone has his place, is what Confucius said. Um, in Korea, it's kind of like the family dynasty idea but also, you know, Korea has been, the Korean people in that peninsula there have been occupied and taken over by so many different bigger countries, most notably Japan, that they have this part of their national identity, and this goes for South Korea too, is opposition, right? Standing against the bigger guy, being the underdog, right? So that's kind of, that's North Koreans propaganda type stuff there is all about, it's all interwoven into that mentality. Yes, and feeding right into that, uh, good old K. Jong, uh, his film <laughs> to him, films weren't just a sort of source of entertainment, but a powerful tool for social education, or as friends in the uh, MK Ultra Project would like to call it, brainwashing. Yeah, propaganda. Yep, propaganda, uh, but but extreme propaganda. You know, more more so than like what the U.S. Like we did our minor brain brainwashing in like you know World War One, World War Two, depicting the enemy as weird looking and subhuman to make the soldiers feel less bad about killing innocent people. But right. but North Korean brainwashing is like ridiculous. It is poured down your throat how great the dynasty family is and how powerful yeah. and awesome your country well, is. Because like when you live in a mostly free society, you have other content to compare that propaganda to. So yeah. you can make a decision kind of. In North Korea, it's completely, uh, that's all you see. Yes. There's the no other information. Stuff. Yeah. So how do you make a movie so great it can help you brainwash your country? You need to. You need the hottest director and the hottest actress to grab the people's attention. Uh, Kim Jong Il thought so, and he knew just who. This is where shit starts getting really fun. This feeds into uh, what you were saying about kidnapping people to make a movie. Uh, so Kim Jong set his sights on his favorite director, Shin Sang Ok, uh, who just so happened to be married to the hottest actress around, Choi Yoon Hee. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. These two had exactly what Kim Jong. 
uh, was looking for for his movie, except for the fact that they were both South Korean citizens. <laughs> um, which, you know, even even in the, you know, 50s, 60s, uh, they were not getting along. They were separate countries and they did not mm-hmm. like each other. Um, you know, there, there's even do you know that there are South Korean businesses who make money from South America or South South Korea? Sorry, South Korean businesses that make money in South Korea helping people get out of North Korea. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Yeah, it's that's one of the most dangerous defections to do is to get out of North Korea. Yeah, you have to go. And, to, you have to go to China first. You have to go north through yeah. China. And then you also come have back to get down. shot at multiple times because yeah. there's guards everywhere. Uh, thing about yeah, Korea, it's the war never ended. There was a ceasefire, but yeah. not a treaty. Oh yeah. So since 1952, 53, technically they've been at war. That's why those guards stare at each other across the border, the looking all mean and stuff. Yeah, it's like a 20, yeah. 20 yard gap or whatever. The DMZ. Yeah. Um that that didn't that one guy get shot seven times and the South Korean soldiers. There was the guy, like, he was running through everything yeah. and got shot a whole bunch of times and got and made it. That and, that son of a yeah. bitch was so tough because not only did he survive, but later while he was still in the hospital, they pulled a two foot long intestinal parasite out of him. Fun times. That guy is tough as nails. Give him a free house and a really good job. Right. Too bad he wasn't born here. He could run for president. Right. Just on that alone, I got shot yeah. seven times, and then he just doesn't mention the intestinal parasite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That doesn't play well, especially not in the South. Um, anyway, so so Kim Kimmy J set out to do uh, what any re- respectable or reputable filmmaker would do in this situation: kidnap everyone he needed to make his movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, if you don't have the people in your country, instead of you know inviting them and trying to make some sort of peace negotiation and and diplomatic you know uh, reasoning behind making this film, uh, just fucking kidnap people. Why not? Mm-hmm. Now uh, there will be there will be absolutely no evidence except for their participation in these films. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now the year is 1978. So, you know, this is this is getting later, uh, later into his plans here. Uh, Kim Jong-il sends word to Choi Yun-hee uh, claiming uh, to be a Chinese filmmaker that wanted her uh, for a film, um, possibly as lead actress, possibly as a director and possibly as a film school teacher. The history <laughs> behind exactly what the proposition was is fuzzy. But we do know he said, hey, I'm a Chinese you know, film exec. I want you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he sends agents to Hong Kong and kidnaps Choi when she arrives. Uh, and being being a lovely at at that point ex husband, unfortunately, uh, but being a lovely a loving ex husband, Shin heads out to Hong Kong to find her as soon as he gets noticed that she's disappeared. It was a straight up bait and trap kind of situation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is already getting to the part like like it sounds like a spy movie, right? You kidnap the guy's girlfriend, knowing he's gonna show up. Like <laughs> like I feel like this kind of plot should go with the music. You know? Have they made a movie about this yet? Uh, I believe there is a documentary. Okay. Um, it might be in production or it might be out. Uh, but there are like three books about it. Okay. But I do have to say, if it were to be a John James Bond plot. Um, then it would have to be a Roger Moore one. I think this would be a good Roger Moore one. <laughs> so Choi was locked Roger up. Roger Moore got all the crazy ones. Right? That's, break her for crying out loud. Yeah, that's why I think he, she, he would be great for this. <laughs> um, so Choi, she was she was locked up, but she was pampered and given every luxury, basically the star treatment because she was an actress. Um, while Shin was put in prison camps until he agree, agreed to make good old Kimmy's film. And what's ridiculous about this is he 
as soon as he got captured, Shin, as soon as he got cap- captured, he just tried to escape at every freaking chance he got. He tried to get out of there. Well, yeah, I mean, he's sooner or later, you're going to get an intestinal parasite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, to top the kidnapping cake, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, still posing as a Chinese filmmaker, nabbed a few special effects artists from Toho Productions. Now, for anyone who doesn't know... That sounds familiar. Yes, it should be super familiar, especially with you having to ha- to listen to me bitch all the time about kaijus, because Toho is the kaiju creator. Toho Productions made Godzilla, the original Godzilla, all the way through all the Godzilla films, minus the American ones. Basically, everything Godzilla, that is Toho. So we're not just talking Godzilla. We're talking Godzilla, King Caesar, Rodan, Mothra, Gigan, Ghidra, everybody. You know, Mecha Godzilla, Space Godzilla. I, the list goes on and on. You're the you're the Bubba of Godzilla. I am. You can name them all. <laughs> so yeah, Toho Productions was behind Godzilla, um, and uh, basically the top kaiju special effects people uh, of all time is what he kidnapped. So he he specifically kidnapped the special effects artists. So guys to do the explosions sets and make the suit. Mm -hmm. And now for anyone who feels like messaging us on anchor or at your BMSG at gmail.com to correct me that since Polgasari is Korean, he can't be a Kaiju because the term Kaiju is Japanese. I call bullshit because he was designed and created by kidnapped Japanese Toho special effects artists. So Polgasari is a motherfucking Kaiju. That's a loophole, but I thought kaiju was just the Japanese word for giant monster. Like, it could be anything. It, it is, but technically, you know, if it's a U.S. giant monster, we should say giant monster. If it's, you know, uh, cu- cultural appropriation. Right. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody these days and age right now. I got, I got to be careful. Well, Since you and me are very white, we have to be careful as fuck right now. Well, then Japan's got to send back all their baseball stuff. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so so Kim Jong-il forces uh, his North Korean crack filmmaking team uh, and his kidnapped victims to churn Wait, out... There's, there's crack, too? There's I'm crack. Just, sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm he, kidding. he forces his cracked-out <laughs> filmmaking team, <laughs> which, you know Wouldn't what? Believe, I'm sure there was some amphetamines involved in sort of keeping them working, you know? Oh, yeah. Keeping, them, keeping their moods up. There's got to be something working seven days a week, 25 hours a day somehow. But he he makes his filmmaking team and his kidnapped victims uh, churn out the megalithic kaiju monster jam Polgasari, and that is that is the monster in the movie, and that is the uh, that is the name of the film. Uh, now to talk about, like you said, you know this seems like something is crazy, and it just it just can't be. You want to hear the plot of this craziness? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, feudal North Korea, uh, there's an evil king uh, keeping the peasants of the land miserable in miserable conditions and a constant state of near starvation, uh, ruling over them with an iron fist. So, he's just like an asshole dictator, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, an old master bla- blacksmith is sent to, the, sent to prison for helping defend his people against the king's rule. Uh, and while in prison, he uses rice, he smashes together rice, and he makes a tiny figure of a monster, asking the gods of earth and sky to bless it and make it a living creature that could help uh, protect his people, namely his daughter. So at this point, okay. it's so at this point, it's just a fucking rice doll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, in the movie, um, the rice doll, he starts out, he's about the size of like a Star Wars first gen action figure. He's like three and a quarter tall. He's pretty small. Um, the blacksmith do- blacksmith dies in prison, uh, but his daughter somehow receives the doll. I forgot exactly how she receives it, uh, but she receives the doll. And by sheer happenstance, she ends up bleeding on it. 
Uh, when it comes in contact with some of her blood, it turns into a tiny living creature she names Polgasari, which is the name of a guardian creature in stories her father used to tell her. And then she fed it after midnight. <laughs> Almost. It's actually the it's actually straight up uh, Gremlin's plot line here. Uh, soon this little guy is chomping down on iron tools and cookware and growing into a huge unstoppable monster. So that's that's the thing right there. He eats metal. That's his food. And every time he eats metal, he grows bigger and stronger. So he's rust. Yeah, just about. <laughs> or batteries not included, one of the helpers or the fixers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Except instead of creating tiny, adorable robots, he, you know, is an unstoppable monster. Right. Um, with Polgasari behind them, the peasants attack the palace of their region's governor and they kill him. Uh, the king hears of this and sends uh, an army out to stop the peasant rebellion, um, not knowing they got a fucking monster. Uh, but Polgasari kills that army and grows even bigger when he eats their weapons. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of. Uh, that whole feeding the beast idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, after a few battles, uh, send metal down Pol- Polgasari's throat. The king manages to capture and kill the leader of the rebellion and threatens to kill the blacksmith's daughter. Polgasari yields to the king's demands um, because he doesn't want the daughter to die, and he is buried under the ground. Um, they set up a very elaborate trap for Polgasari, <laughs> um, but they bury him under the ground and basically kill him, smash him to death under all the dirt. Uh, but the blacksmith daughter manages to escape and she revives the big burly beast with some more of her blood. She goes over and she slits her hand and she bleeds all over the gravesite, and all of a sudden, boom, big baddie's back. Yay. Right. And you know, everyone cheers. A kid gets a lollipop. Oh, sorry. That's Gamera again. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, anyone out here there who wants to wants to watch the weirdest Gamera film war of the monsters. It's just strange. There's a monster with an axe face that's cutting up another monster into like little slices. And I just don't, I don't get it. He's mad because people call him ass face to make <laughs> fun of him. It's not my name. Yep. And every time he tries to talk, they're like, hey, we didn't ax you anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it kills him. But the daughter bleeds on him, brings him back to life. Uh, okay. And he comes back. He comes back with enough strength uh, to crush the king's palace and kills the king. So at this point, problem resolved. King's dead. People are free, right? Right. But what's left for Polgasari to do now that he's killed the king? And that's exactly where we're going, except for the fact that their big monster buddy needs a constant supply of metal and quickly eats through everything the peasants can scrounge for him, leaving them at risk of starving again because they're unable to farm because all the tools would be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the blacksmith's daughter hides in a giant iron bell that Polgasari hasn't found yet, uh, and he eats her. Um, but mm. when he imbibes her blood, uh, because, you know, he's supposed to be her savior, not her, her demise, it kills him permanently gone. Polgasari's dead. Oh. Uh, so that's the basic summary plot. Now here's, so the, he's a, he's a bad guy. He's sounds like, sounds like he did 90% good things for the people he created or was created to do. And, and here's where the political part comes back in. So I'll, I'll probably have to, uh, to, to step, step back and, and let you kind of explain to me the usefulness of why he would try to get this out of a movie. The subtle plot line in Polgasari. Um, so basically, uh, K.J. Illa planned for the film to convey the dangers of democracy, showing it as a monster, <laughs> showing, it, showing it as a monster that once it is fed, it will not stop until it turns on its own people. So the Polgasari was supposed uh. to represent the idealism of democracy growing with the people and then them feeding it until it's an unstoppable force 
that makes them sacrifice themselves. Basically right. saying democracy's bad, don't do it. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense because the metaphor is clearly um, the monster metaphor is pretty relatable there, right? You know, because democracy, um, there was, uh, I think you skipped over the part where there was like a ballot referendum to create the monster. <laughs> and like a, there was a primary election between like a, an insect monster and Paul Gasari, like his, I assume is a lizard monster and like a reptilian yeah. type monster. And then Congress voted on, on electoral votes. For, <laughs> and that's how, because it doesn't seem like Paul Gasari has a very democratic beginning. He's no. just, it's just some dude praying to God. Yeah. Two gods. Right? Two gods. Bunch of gods. Bunch of gods. Several. So... Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, everything about the North Korean society is everything outside of North Korea is dangerous and wants to get us. Uh, they're like the porcupine of countries, right? They just, or maybe an armadillo. That's, <laughs> put, put that on their flag, armadillo, North Korea. But like the whole country existed as a puppet state of the Soviet Union, which no longer exists. So now it's a puppet state of China. And in order to maintain that, they've propped up this family, the Kim family, who, you know, Kim Il-sung was basically a guy, he was a, an army officer in the North Korean army during the war. And then Stalin, literally Stalin goes to that asshole Lavrenti Beria and says, "Who who's a good Korean guy to put in charge of our new puppet government in North Korea? And they're like, and he's like, Kim Il-sung. And they... But that's not the story they're told. They're told that his birth, he was born on a mountain and his birth was foretold by swallows. So if people are like eating this shit up about the origins of their country, yeah, this movie is right up their alley. <laughs> As, and I'm sure they'll, they'll, I wonder if in North Korea, when you go to see a movie, if there's like some little commissar guy that walks out and says, here's what the movie is about and here's what you should pay attention to and tries to explain it. I you know, bet so there was. Make sure that the message isn't lost in, I, the, art, in the artistic expression of it. Yes. You know? I, I'm assuming that the movie, whenever it was shown to the people, came with both an after, a forward and an afterward that someone uh, read yeah. off of a script. Because um, you sure wouldn't want... Because if I'm sitting there, I'm thinking uh, Kim Jong-il is the king. Yeah. Because he's, he's the leader of my country and responsible for... The government tells me he's responsible for everything good in my life, but I actually know from my own two eyes that he's responsible for everything bad in my life. And he's keeping everyone in near starvation. <laughs> yeah. And family <laughs> family members keep disappearing. Yeah. Well, uh, and and, and so. here, here's the funny part about that movie and, and, you know, what he try what he wanted to portray from it and then how the state of the people were treated at that time and, and still currently um, when that film came out is all the things the king was doing, like you're saying, is is how they were living. So yeah, it's, it, it was weird for him to approve that script with such a similar character to himself and his father as the ones running the show until the big bad monster comes and kills them. Hmm. And, and, and I, I don't know if maybe he, maybe he meant that people would, would understand. It's like, Oh, you thought the King was cruel, but he was doing what was right for you. And you just didn't understand, you know, or one of the, some of that bullshit. I, yeah. I, cause I, I, I ran across the film. I didn't even know it existed until it came up on my, on um, some of my suggested, um, because I, I'm monster movies and stuff like that. I always watch. And I, I, I read the plot and I was like, cause under the producer credit before the description, it just said produced by Kim Jong-il. And I'm like, that has to be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I went and I watched it and, and even me watching it, watching through it, it kind of more to me felt like people need to be willing to sacrifice themselves if it means for the greater good of all is almost <laughs> what the plot seemed like. It seemed In terms like, of the daughter. In terms of the daughter, yeah. The daughter yeah. was actually the savior. The daughter was the new government, quote unquote. Mm. But she got eaten. Exactly, because she she had she was willing to give up herself oh. for the people. Okay. That's that's what I that's that's what I got out of it, and that that I didn't read the full story behind. The, all I read was the description of the movie, which literally just said like sort of like a quick synopsis of what happens, and that it was produced by Kim Jong Il. That is all I saw. That is all I watched until after, and I looked up more about the film, and so mm. that's why I was kind of like, well, to, that it didn't feel like that to me. It didn't feel like Pulgasari was democracy fucking with everyone. He didn't feel like the king was the good guy because everything it shows the king doing, he's just a dick. Mm. <laughs> he just fucks with everybody and wants his people to be downtrodden and and starving. <laughs> I I mean, you you know more more about this than I do because you know you you follow political things uh, uh, much better than I do. But is does this sound North Korea e like this whole idea of this film to brainwash? Oh yeah, North Korea. I don't know. I got to hand it to Kim first of all. Because when you think about like uh, Vanity Projects, it's always written, directed, and starring. And at least he didn't put himself as like the hero of the movie or the farmer. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got I to gotta at least hand it to him that way. He's uh, actually I don't not know, maybe, maybe there's other movies. Well, he has, like, it's like uh, Alfred Hitchcock. He has a cameo where he's waiting for the bus in the background. Yeah. But like, you think about like, you know, Gedevin or whatever, the, the Richard, <laughs> Richard DeHart or Neil Breen. Oh, especially hashtag, Neil Breen. I wouldn't be surprised. On Breen. Yeah, I wouldn't surprise, yeah. be surprised if Neil Breen made Paul Gasari too. Right. <laughs> Except, yeah, he he's friends with Paul Gasari because of they have a spiritual connection, just like him and the tiger. Um, <laughs> what are you? Eagle. Are you a giant monster? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we should watch Fateful Findings again or something. We talk about Neil Breen and his uh, world, his universe. I am 100% for that. But like, yeah, everything about North Korean society is about creating a fantasy world where North Korea is the center of the world and the center of goodness. And if it wasn't for the, you know, the Western democracies and the, you know, stop me if you've heard this story before, if it wasn't for the Western democracies and all those free people living out there guzzling their Mountain Dew uh, and watching their sitcoms, that the whole world could be like North Korea. You know, and everyone, nobody would, would want uh, for anything and everyone would just be happy and we, they would listen to that sing-songy propaganda music all damn day. But they want for uh, everything and that's the crazy part is... is exactly. We, people, that's the people, power of propaganda is yeah. to tell you that you're not... You're, what you've experienced is not true. Or It's like in the movie Goodbye Lenin where he's keeping his mom sequestered out of good intentions so she doesn't have another heart attack from the shock of the Berlin wall coming down. But then he, he does to her what the whole country, the whole government of his country did to their whole population for 40 years was don't believe your eyes. Here's what the truth is. And if you say something uh, up against that, we're going, you'd be ostracized or even imprisoned. Mm. And in North Korea, there is no such thing as ostracized. You're just imprisoned. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I mean, you're talking about perception, you know, the brainwashing and, and, and the, the propaganda that they show everybody, the human perception element of it, I I think is huge. Cause as, as I said, when I just watched the film, I did not perceive 
the fact that Pulgasari was was a mistake. You know, Pulgasari had unforeseen consequences, but he even even at the end, like even as the girl is going to going to sacrifice herself in this bell, she laments about the fact that she does love Pulgasari, but this is the only way, you know, to to stop him. So for me, I I, per, I perceived that you know Polgasari was still a good guy to the end, a good guy unleashed, but a good guy nonetheless. And to to show this to your people, and then oh, it, it seems weird. It seems like you'd almost have to propaganda the brainwashing to get it to be proper brainwashing. Well, the metaphor is backwards because, and all you got to do is stop feeding him. Polgasari kills the king, so his he's done, right? So the metaphor you're looking for is the hero never lives to see the world he creates or the revolutionary never lives long enough to see the revolution complete, kind of, you know? Yes, which is a great so, a great plot. So Polgasari should be the one making the sacrifice and like, oh, you're, I've, you know, the evil is gone. Now there's no need for Polgasari, so I'm going to go wander until I starve to death or whatever. I'm going to find new source of iron or whatever and then the people live just live yeah well but again the, the intended brainwashing behind it like as movies go yes that makes way more sense <laughs> but <laughs> but as far as the brainwashing goes you know he he you know intended Polgasari to be this evil this this subtly evil thing and and that's what's kind of another crazy thing about the movie like it, it's a pretty standard time like it's it's like hour and a half nearly um, you know, it's, it's pretty standard, straightforward, you know, three act movie, but it is a long walk for a really short drink of warm water. Does it feel its length? Yeah, uh, it does. Almost all kaiju movies, um, older ones at least feel their length, but you know, you have to like them. Polgasari, I, I do have to say it is an entertaining monster movie, um, mainly for the effects though, less than the story. Cause again, he kidnapped Toho people, which Toho people were the guys, you know, they did Mothra, which if you haven't seen the original Mothra, again, I'll, I'll stay for that. Original Godzilla, like check these movies out because the, the effects seem super cheesy now. They really do. But these were people straight up uh, riding the same lines as like Ray Harryhausen. No one knew how to do any of this. There was no book. There was no examples. There were no, you know, magazines or articles you know, saying like, oh, we did this for our movie. None of that existed yet. These were people sitting there, you know, and they go, well, we want we want a big lizard to find a giant moth and we want him to do it in a city, but the city has to have live footage in front. Uh, figure it out. You have till Tuesday. Yeah. Well, that's like, I mean, what's his name who did the sound for Star Wars? was like, okay, they want lasers. So I'm going to take a live wire and strike it against a core, a cable, a steel cable. And record that sound and synthesize it, you know? Yeah. Like, they're just movies. It's the ultimate mad scientist job to be a VFX guy or a special effects prop guy or whatever in the old days, like a Jim Henson guy or, you know, just like I've talked about this on, if you go way back into the proto, nobody asked for this when we called it booze for movies. I think I talked about how in Terminator, the producers or the studio were like, we need a better close-up of the Terminator dying at the end. Spoiler. So they got like a red flashlight and blew smoke across and recreated the press with styrofoam, like spray painted styrofoam and just blew smoke from a Marlboro cigarette into the screen. And that's your, that's your parting shot where the eyeball fades out. And it's fucking beautiful. And that's all it is. And that's, that is hailed as top tier movie making. And these guys are just like, <laughs> they're laughing at the bar, you know, like, <laughs> you know, these guys think we're, we're making magic here. It's just, 
it's Marlboro cigarettes and a flashlight. Well, it's the same. That's the same thing too. Like like Ray Ray Harryhausen for his effects. You know, he he was even to the point that you know he didn't have like the as much of a prop budget and experts even that like Terminator had. So a lot of it was him working on his own, sometimes at home in his basement doing these shots and these animations with the equipment the studio provided him. And you know, th- this is a guy that like he's like, well, the monster is forty foot tall, so he goes and he gets a forty foot fucking pole and puts googly eyes on it and chases <laughs> the actors around with it so that they know where to look and scream and point and and you know lucas uh i've talked about this before but uh george lucas and his special effects team lay claim to the whole layered exposure um for doing you know like their their space battles and everything but ray harryhausen actually invented that for the movie uh beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms Mm. he did he took um a regular like a set uh, a movie or sorry a, a film clip of a uh, street like uh, a wide angle of a street and he literally found where to measure and cut out the shape of the right side of it where no one like crosses it so you won't see the two layers he played the film onto a cutout a black cutout and then a white cutout of those two uh, of those two sides and then do, did the same thing except opposite so the other side on black the other side on white and so it, it, it exposed on two he took one shot basically and used film exposure to cut it apart then he laid his monster in between that on a third layer and exposed that so you have mm. this monster perfectly walking out from between two buildings and chasing cars and shit and this is this dude figuring out in his basement with fucking duct tape and wire and camera equipment you know, you had these geniuses, and and I think I, I I hate to go off on it, but I mean, Pulgasari is is a kaiju, and kaiju's are the plot of this one. So Toho, I I cannot speak enough to them because I look back and I, I was actually watching um, Mothra, the standalone Mothra movie. Yeah, Mothra was a bad guy his first time out, by the way. Um, Mo- I was watching the original Mothra movie, and there's a part where the caterpillar version of Mothra is marching through the city, and it was almost like a Ghostbusters esque kind of goof. You can see the building in front of or just the sheet of a building in front of the rest of the building kind of waver and change color a little bit and it's because they had to do that effects you know double over i i kind of giggled at it first then i was like wait no one did this yet like even ghostbusters these dudes had some idea as to how they were going to do this they're making mothra and these guys look at each other going I don't know. Let's cut up some film and see what happens. Yeah. Now you just punch up on a computer, make Mothra. Yeah. Beep boop bop. I mean, I can literally. It's just that easy. Yeah, I can literally <laughs> right now go to Turbo Squid, which is a a three D uh, a three D entity site that you can go and download three D stuff from, and I can get Mothra like right oh. now for like four bucks. <laughs> 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 so you know, yeah, we we have options now that that just weren't then. So. Even even in speaking into Polgasari, that's that's I kind of I kind of think that's the saving grace of this movie as far as like kaiju fans because the well, effects and the suit are phenomenal. Actually, I would say that the Polgasari suit is one of the better monster suits I've ever seen from Toho guys. But these guys were literally threatened upon pain of death versus hey you'd be fired. <laughs> yeah, well, and imagine being that that guy you're you've been kidnapped and. You're you're in the room. They pull the bag over you, off your head, and you see it's Kim Jong Il standing there, and you're like, "Oh shit!" And you're like, "Well, imagine like you have to." I'm I'm guessing that Kim Jong Il has no idea how to make a movie or what is necessary, the equipment, the budget, the funding, the scheduling, the storyboarding, and all that. Imagine having to lay all that out to this guy who is not only ignorant, stupid, but also could just 
kill you at any moment. Yeah, if you if he doesn't like, like your you, answer, he can just kill you. It's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, and it kind of makes sense while why people did such a good job because like the, the lead actress Shin or uh, Choi, um, she she's actually great in it. I, I I say as far as monster movie performances, I mean she's awesome. She was really <laughs> really good. And the directing I can say I, I can say feels very you know apt uh, and appropriate for a monster movie. Uh, everything feels in place. Like if you were, if you were to show this to me and I knew nothing of the backstory, I would say, okay, it's a, you know, it's a somewhat Korean monster movie that kind of missed the mark on the plot. You know, like I'd be like, all right, you know, but it's like, it was, it's good. Not one of my favorites, but it's great. Um, mm-hmm. but then you, you tell the story and you're like, oh, that's why it's so good. <laughs> Cause these people probably a good majority of the time had guns to their heads being screamed at to finish this shit up and get it right and make it look amazing. And and what's sad to say is Polgasari is the famous one, but he is not the only movie right. made by this team. I think they made like 13 films for him. Oh, God. That's a, that's a fucking nightmare. Yes. It's just insane. I mean, you hear about in Hollywood, just making a movie is stressful, even when you're the star of it. And I yeah. can't imagine. Well, and and to 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 say or to speak of like um, how we we just can't imagine the story un- unfolding. I do have a little bit about how this all resolved the, these kidnappings and everything. Okay, so Shin came up with a spy style plan to get him and Choi out of there. He started playing buddy, uh, a straight up like um, Rogue One style um, story here, where he starts playing buddy buddy with the bad guy and makes himself indispensable. And oh. starts starts telling Kim Jong Il, he's like, "Hey, this movie's so great, and and all your films are so great. You know what we should do? We should let the world know how great of filmmakers the North Korea, North Korean film market is. So let's go on international film festival circuits and get mm. our movie out there. So and good this, idea. Yes. So this I thought it was good. I thought you were going to say let's film on location somewhere. No, no. Like, not, that is not here. No, exactly. <laughs> well, he actually, if you think about it, it's a brilliant plan because what he did is he lured Kim Jong-il into not only himself going out and all his cronies going out, but letting Shin and and Choi go out also because they had to well, be there. To. Yeah, They're exactly. They're the stars. They're, yeah, yeah. They, they have to be up there on stage so, you know, they can all bow together and everyone can clap. He, he convinced Kim Jong-il of this, so he started toting them everywhere. So all, he, all Shin and Choi did is they just waited and they watched at every film festival they went to. They just laid low. They didn't push. They just kind of watched. And then finally, finally, they got to Austria, mm-hmm. Vienna specifically, right? Mm-hmm. 1986. So this is eight years after this movie uh, was made, or after they were kidnapped, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, eight years after they ki- they were kidnapped, and they go to to Austria. They're at this film festival. They realize how busy it is. They realize his cronies are distracted. Kim Jong is distracted. Um, there's a, a ton of people that they can hide uh, through the crowds with. So Shin goes over to Choi and he goes, "Let's go, bitch," <laughs> <laughs> and they bolt. And they make it. Now there's no uh, there's no Japanese embassy there. Um, there's no uh, North or South Korean embassy there. Um, so you know they couldn't go to the Japanese embassy and be like, "Hey guys, you know the, he has your, some of your Toho dudes." And they you know there's no embassy of their country to go to and be like, "Help, <laughs> take us <laughs> home." So they go to the U.S. embassy. It's the first first major one they found. And we, uh, you know, the U.S. Embassy uh, takes him in and is like, 
what the fuck are you talking about? He did what? You've been gone for how long? Um, <laughs> Don't mention anything about the movies. Just say we've been kidnapped by Kim Jong-il. That, yeah. That's all you got to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they get out. They tell him the whole get story. later. <laughs> they tell him the whole story. The U.S. Embassy feels so bad for them. We actually get them citizenship and move them to the U.S., where they remained until 1999. Hmm. 13 years they remained over in the U.S. before going back to South Korea. Um, and that was for that. A lot of that was for fear of, you know, North Korean yeah, insurgents. To exactly. Rekidnap yeah. or just kill them. But yeah. it was still uh, if if my information is correct, I I've found conflicting reports on how long it was. I've, I've heard a few months. I've seen a couple of years. But based on the average between a lot of the information I found, the Toho guys stayed hostage to Kim Jong-il's movie making craziness for another like two years. Yikes. Until um and, and this this isn't because people just forgot about him. There was mounting plans and research and everything to get these guys out ever since they um ever since uh, Shin and Choi showed up at the US embassy. So working with the Japanese embassy, US embassy like gets it all set up and finally they set something up and boom, bust the guys out, get them home. Huh. Um no one no one of the kidnapped kidnapped or no one of the abductees died, which is great. They were treated very shittily, minus Choi. <laughs> Man, it seems like it would just been better to be an actor in this situation. Um, right. uh, so, like, luckily no one died, but they were treated really shitty. But these people lost years of their life with their families in their home countries because this psychotic douchebag decides that he can't muster up the people in his own country to make his prop propaganda kaiju films. Huh. And and it's insane that they would have to pull such an elaborate plot to escape. It really does. Like, I, I feel like if I describe this to someone, I don't mention any names. I don't, you know, I don't say what country. I just say, oh, a mad dictator uh, kidnaps people from other countries to make his uh, propaganda movies. Um, but his propaganda movies aren't regular propaganda. They're subtle plots hidden inside giant monster films. Like someone would be looking at me like, what? are you having a stroke? Are you OK? <laughs> It doesn't sound real, but it totally is, but it totally is. <laughs> That's the crazy part. And I think the thing that makes it so much more interesting, especially as a U.S. citizen, is, you know, we have been bombarded with news of our, you know, feud with North Korea and, and the bullshit that we've, of course, gotten ourselves into with, uh, you know, dicking around with other countries in that situation. So. You know, we we all know of Kim Jong Il and Kim Jong Un and just like all all the Kim family and yeah. and all the stuff going on with them. So to pop up <laughs> literally, like, <laughs> well, what was it a month ago? They thought he was brain dead because of botched surgery, and everyone was like, "Ooh, his cute sister's gonna take in charge. She's gonna be a cute little Hello Kitty dictator." <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I just can't. But the irony about North Korea and as it reflects in American entertainment is: remember that interview or that movie came out a few years ago called The Interview. Yes. They had all the controversy surrounding it. Uh, ironically, James Franco and Seth Rogen are absolutely correct in that movie in that if we were to just bomb North Korea or give South Korea the means to do that, we would literally be fulfilling all of their brainwashing, like everything that they've been brainwashed to think would come true yeah. about us, like all the bad shit. So we've got to be subtle about it and like say, hey, guy, you know, just... Maybe you just take you know take down the wall and just come on over and visit South Korea for a little bit and then just don't go back. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, and I I I think um I think you're completely right with that. We are in this weird social checkmate that um you know we we can't really outright attack each other because we'll prove each other right. 
and we well i know kim the kim family doesn't care about that but we'll prove each other right if we attack each other but there's no like there's no easy clear way to resolve it i i think um what we should do is uh we should figure out some sort of like chemical drop that we can do that just makes everyone feel really nice like super generous and like absolute <laughs> sweethearts and just just keep chemtrailing that over north korea until everyone's just such a sweetheart you know they they fucking make treaties and we just let a few <laughs> generations go by until everyone forgot there was a problem and then stop stop dropping the chemicals and because then by that time i'd be like yeah you know we used to be mad but man we weren't for the longest time so i guess everything's fine well yeah <laughs> or I, that too sci-fi i think we've been waiting for the the north korean regime to just fail for so long that we it just hasn't happened yet we figured it would just collapse in on itself and the people would eventually just get sick of it. But that, that that propaganda really, really works when you have absolutely complete control over about 5 million people, you know? Yeah. Same Ooh. thing for Hollywood. Here, Here's a neat fact. People believe anything Hollywood, any stereotype Hollywood puts out, they just believe it. Well, speaking of people believing things, I actually found a cool little fact here. Um, There's some factoids that I didn't notice before, but this is this is how smart uh, Shin and Choi were. They apparently knew that some people might not believe them, uh, that they were kidnapped unwillingly and and forced to to make these films. So they were actually sneaking tape recorders in to every conversation that Kim Jong Il had with them. Uh, mm. And in one conversation in October of 1983, Kim Jong Il openly talked about having kidnapped both of them and his um, <laughs> intent to never let them go. <laughs> Could you say that more clearly into the flower in my lapel? <laughs> sir? Why, why does this lamp look so weird? Nothing. Stand close to it and talk. That is, that oh, is boy. insane. I, I can't believe I missed that factoid because I was researching this one pretty, pretty good because I, I love the story behind this movie. But it, it just shows how smart that Choi and Shin were too, that they're like, eh, we just got to bide our time. We'll get out of here. I mean, I'm not assuming it was nonchalant as that, but still, that is insane. Ah, it's, a kai, it's a kaiju story for a kaiju movie. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. All they had to worry about uh, making Godzilla was did the noodles get cold at lunch? <laughs> hey, that's important, man. Cold ramen is just <laughs> all right. Uh, well, I, well, no. Speaking of Godzilla, I mean Godzilla to to go alongside Polgasari, Godzilla is another metaphor movie, but the metaphor plays in perfectly. As you know, yeah. They the um there's a a few people I've talked to who were who were giant monster fans um at work, and uh, I'm no longer friends with these people because they have it completely wrong and it makes me mad. But they there is always the odd like fan theory that pops up with kaiju fans somewhere that Godzilla, the original Godzilla was a metaphor for the U S and how we were a complete monster to Japan. And that's actually not the case. Um, no, it was just about atomic stuff. It was, yeah, it wasn't about the fact that they were, that we had bombed them. It wasn't about the, the, you know, any bad nature between uh, the two countries. It was actually about the fact that the the you know the original Toho writers of Godzilla and uh, the director and everything were like atomic power or atomic bombs are awful like like yes we got bombed by him but this shouldn't happen to anybody so Godzilla was a metaphor for how horrifying uncontrolled nuclear energy is that's what he was a metaphor he was a big radioactive monster radioactive monster that burnt everything in his mm -hmm. path 
that was Godzilla. That was the metaphor. And that is how you play a metaphor. You're like, well, here's a basic idea. Um, well, let's see. Uh, the idea is uh, atomic energy. It's explosive. It destroys everything that it touches. And we have no control over it. Well, what else is something that we don't control? Well, you know, we don't control really big monsters. <gasps> Perfect. Metaphor. Do it. <laughs> Godzilla. Longest running monster movie of all freaking time. Pulgasari. Well, I think democracy is a bad thing. And I want to brainwash my people into to believing that. Uh, what about a, a monster made of rice that eats metal and kills a king? Ah, okay, do it. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I, I feel like uh, the plot missed the, missed the mark, but the story is just a gem. Mm-hmm. No, no, uh, no, no other thoughts. I, 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 no, I think I'm all out of thoughts on Polgasari. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I'm sorry if I took took too much uh, reins of the episode there, but I was just so excited about this this ridiculous uh, event that happened. And I wanted to share that with the world um, for anyone out there who is a movie fan who has not seen Pulgasari. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Nobody Asked for This, just another podcast about movies. Thank you for letting us discuss Pulgasari and Korean politics uh, with you all. Uh, if you would like to tell me I'm wrong about Kaiju or tell Stephen he's wrong about international politics, uh, feel free to message us on Anchor <laughs> FM or at yourbmsg at gmail.com. That is right, yourbmoviesupportgroup at gmail.com. <laughs>